You're listening to the Outstanding Life Podcast with your host, Johnny D, the motivational cowboy. 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 As a motivational speaker, Johnny D impacts audiences around the world with his message of living the outstanding life. He's a best-selling author, MC, and two-time Grammy-considered artist. This podcast is a place where Johnny D can introduce you to his outstanding friends and share funny, interesting, and heart-provoking stories. Ladies and gentlemen, buckle up. Here comes your host, Johnny D. Hey everybody, I'm Johnny D, the Motivational Cowboy. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Outstanding Life Podcast. Before we get things kicked off today, I want to say a big hello to all my friends tuning in on Dirt Road Radio, KYDT 103.1 FM and KBFS 1450 AM. Today, today we have a story right out of Hollywood. Well, not quite out of Hollywood yet, but it could be. And when you get done listening to this episode, you're going to be like, this should be a book. This should be a movie. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Michael Horn. Michael, how are you? Johnny, man, I am doing so well. Thanks for having me on the show. Really been looking forward to this. Yeah, Michael, where are you at right now? Because I saw a picture of uh, uh, of your awesome uh, Silverado parked in the parking lot with the hills <laughs> behind it. The, I, sh- I shouldn't say hills. They are mountains, and it does not look warm at all. Oh, man, I'm here in Afton, Wyoming, which is in Star Valley, and that's about 60 miles south of Jackson Hole, where the first entryway for tourism to Yellowstone. Um, just the, the welcoming sign of the world's largest Elkhorn Arch, which is about 25 feet outside of my small Western Ranch retail store, Swift Creek Trading. Oh, that is so cool. And, and your store is just so amazing. And we'll talk about that later. I've already been online, you know, wanting to do some shopping. So when you see my name come across, you'll know who it is. I love it. Thank you. Uh, Mike, Michael, let's get right into this. Uh, where were you yeah. Where were you brought up and, and what were you like as a child? Oh, man. So I was born in Long Beach Memorial Hospital in Long Beach, California. I was raised in Southern California till I was about 19 or 20. And that just varied all inner city, Long Beach, Compton, Paramount, Pasadena, just all over that area. Um, mostly, so how we landed there was my grandparents escaped the Holocaust, European Jews that immigrated from Austria and Odessa, Poland to New York. And then my dad was born on Coney Island. And then they moved shortly after that to a little town called Lakewood, which is kind of inside Long Beach. And that was in the early 50s. And that's kind of where we settled and took up. And I, you know, I'm third generation Long Beach, California native. Michael, I don't want to speak for you, but reading everything about you and watching some of the videos that I've seen with you, your childhood was not always the best. Talk a little bit about that. You know, I I would, I would agree with you to a point, but I would say that I was raised mostly with my grandparents. My my parents they've since passed, so I, I speak about them in the in the past tense. They they just really weren't fit probably to be parents, and no fault of their own. Just you know different things and that they had to deal with. So it was a struggle. But I was raised mostly with my grandparents until I was about ten. So all of like the early fundamental years like zero to five were spent with them so i can remember as early as five years old my grandpa was a bit of a hustler he went from being a furniture salesman to selling car stereos in the swap meet in the early 80s so you figure five years old we're talking about like 78 79 and i was at the la mirada swap meet at 4 a.m friday saturday and sunday and i would work all day there with my grandpa Oh, that's Um, cool. And so I, I, and then on Saturdays, because they were Jewish, like I would go with my grandma to the temple and help set set up Shabbat services. And, you know, that was an integral part. So I I think that there was some core foundations of early childhood development that really helped me get through and endure all of the abuse and all of the punishment that life would feed at me for 
45 more years. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank God for your grandparents, right? I mean, because your dad did fight with alcoholism and stuff like that, correct? Oh, yeah. No, it was, yeah, my dad was uh, a very abusive alcoholic. And he had, you know, later on, I learned that, you know, he had some compl- complications at birth. So my dad was born with blue blood, rickets. He was blind. He was deaf. And he died three times in the incubator. And really what he came out of all of that with was he he had a little bit of hard of hearing and he was just an (laughs) (laughs) a-hole. To to, to put it lightly, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. He didn't know how to express love, you know? And so the thing about it is like he, he didn't know how to do that in the family element. But I will tell you when I buried him and I was at his funeral, there was over 150 people there of all different walks of life that every person came up to me and told me how my dad had touched their lives. And wow. for me, like that was what I saw in my dad, no matter how many times he beat me in spite of our relationship and, and lacking that love connection. I idolized my father, man. And to this day, I get up at three 30 every morning and I'm in my seat at four and I start my productivity and that's where it came from. So in spite of those challenges and in spite of those hurdles of abuse, here's where we are. Yeah. And, 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 and the reason why I'm asking the, these questions, Michael, is, you know, to set up what, what, what happens later in your life. Right. Um, yeah, for sure. The, the one thing that, um, um, it, it, it was sad to hear you say this in an in inter, in interview I saw with you. And that was at nine years old, you wanted to take your own life. Like you were not happy. Oh man. What, so what it, happened, Michael? So, yeah. It's so interesting. Cause I was just sharing kind of a more intimate story around that. Um, so there was probably a couple or a few times at that age, like seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, but that, particular part of my life is really what I feel like a a point that really changed everything and and opened up a lot of portals to demons and dark spirits. So my daddy got sober down there in Long Beach and he had gotten a, a sponsor through AA and that sponsor had some stepsons that got out of prison recently. And so they used to watch me during the summer And consistently for probably a year straight, those two young men molested me. And the most challenging part about it was, you know, I can, I can remember a time when my mom might have walked in and uh, this was happening and my mom walked out. You can imagine like the abandonment and uh, just all of the feelings and then not being able to like even talk about that with my parents or anybody else till well into my late teens, early 20s, after I left the house. And then my mom pretty much denied all of it. And then later in life, my father just, he was so crushed. You know, he felt so terrible later on in life. And we'll probably get to that part of the story too. But yeah, I mean, I can't tell you the the demons that I've fought ever since that that day, you know. Michael, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for for sharing these stories because there's so many people that have been through the the same thing and you telling the story, they're going to feel not alone. And so I just want to say thank you for the inspiration, the motivation of of you being able to tell your story. That being said, did you ever get therapy when when this was going on? So First of all, I just want to say thank you for sharing your platform and allowing me to come and share this story. And it is my purpose to live every day and and give hope and share love with whoever I can. Um, In answer to your question, uh, yes. So when my dad first got sober, obviously there was like he went through an inpatient program. And back then, you know, it was a little more serious, like 60 day at the hospital And obviously we started seeing counselors. And so we did, we connected with a therapist and I remember going to a therapist and early in those sessions, I happened to share something in that session. And my mom was listening outside the room and went home 
and my mom always wanted to be the victim and my mom always wanted to make my dad out to be the bad guy. But my mom also weaponized my father against me. So she went home and shared these intimate details that I shared in therapy and I got the beating of my life. And so that closed that door. Right. So there were no outlets. I, I, I would just say that the only outlets I had was my own personal escaping and wherever that would be. My parents, when you talk about abuse, abuse is in many forms and fashion. And so when my, my grandpa passed away, I kind of got pushed back into the house at like 11 or 12. And my parents didn't know how to deal with me. So it would be beatings and it would be locked in my room, sitting on a bed, no toys, no nothing. So when we talk about that, these times that I wanted to kill myself without knowing that that would be the end result, I wouldn't learn that until many years later. But the fact that like I can remember finding a gun in our home, finding a bullet and playing Russian roulette and actually pulling the trigger three times before lowering the gun and the ac the gun accidentally went off and shot a hole through the chair. Wow. The other time I can recall is I drank a whole bottle of codeine. I was always home alone because my parents had to work. So if I was home sick at like six years old, I'd be home alone. So at like nine years old, I found a bottle of codeine and I drank the whole thing. And they said I drank enough to kill an elephant, but somehow... I'm still here. Wow. The one place that, that you absolutely felt safe was the YMCA summer camps. Oh, oh, man. You know, like, so growing up in Long Beach and Compton, you got to understand, let me paint a picture for you. Here's this redhead, freckle face, opie looking kid in a school of, you know, I was, it was the inner city in most cases, like mostly Mexican a lot of blacks and I, I got beat up. I got picked on. I, you know, it wasn't until a couple of times. I mean, I can remember on one, one hand being on the school bus and somebody that just pushed me and pushed me and I, and I just grabbed him and just, I lost it. And early on in my life, I think that's when I learned that I should never do that because I knew that at that point that I had the ability to take another person's life and I didn't ever want to put myself in that situation. So I've always been a bit of a diplomat since then, but yeah, very scary to grow up in, in that situation. So the YMCA, my grandparents, my mom's parents who both were alcoholics and just really didn't do a lot, but they did, they paid for me to go to summer camp every year from five years old and I stayed with the YMCA program well into my late teens as a counselor. I ended up being an archery instructor at one of their summer camps. And it was really a pivotal and instrumental part of my life. And it's how I met my first wife, who gave me my first two children. So, yeah, I love the YMCA. <laughs> <laughs> that is so awesome. Michael, growing up in the inner city and growing up kind of like in the hood, right, as you would call it. Yeah, yeah. Did you? Yeah, I could say that. <laughs> Did you ever get involved with drugs or selling drugs, carrying a gun, anything like that? No. So, you know, interestingly enough, none of that happened until probably like seventh or eighth grade. I do remember in the seventh grade, like my dad had a, a few guns in the house and, you know, I got to a point where I got scared. And yeah, I, I was probably one of those first kids that brought a little 22 Derringer to school to feel safe and feel like I was protected. I, I never had to brandish it or anything like that. I always had a real respect for guns just because of that situation with accidentally firing one. Um, yeah, it got worse, obviously, later on as far as after high school and being involved with gangs. I never did drugs. I never drank until I was 17 and kind of thrown out to the wolves in the street. And then that's when all those things started coming into my life. But, you know, all things considered, I did. I lived a kind of that suburbia life at home, you would think. And then during the day and just the interpersonal relationships with my parents was just trauma, uh, just full of trauma. Michael, so that's a little bit about your childhood. Let's jump to you being a little bit older and you did get yeah. into selling drugs 
And I don't know yeah. if you were doing drugs at that at, at this point, but talk a little bit about that because this is the part of the story where you start to feel like you're the man, right? You felt safe. You you had money. You yeah. had kind of like I don't want to say fame, but 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 you felt that, and then that led into getting in trouble. But talk a little bit about at what age did you get into selling drugs and running drugs? It's really interesting because it's really I kind of equate things into decade periods. So I would say from 17 to 27, when I left the house at 17, I, I this is probably the first time I've ever shared this, but I, I, I didn't even weigh enough to get into the Navy, but they fattened me up. They paid for me to get a, a few extra high school credits so I could graduate early. And they pushed me out into the Navy um, summer of my 17-year-old birthday. So I, I went in the Navy for like 30 days and I, I just... There was just no way. I had come from a background of abuse and people dictating. And so, you know, things came out during that. And I, there was a medical discharge. I came home. My parents decided that they were going to get a divorce after 17 years, that, that, that they were done raising me. They hated each other. My mom moved one way. My dad moved another way. And my dad ended up kind of in the hood in some apartments and my mom moved with her mom down in Long Beach. And in that transition, I ended up with my father in this neighborhood. Some people might be familiar, but it's called Bellflower. And there was a street back then. And on that street was half of the Sureños or the Southside Mexicans. And the other half was Compton Crips and a lot of the uh, Crip gangs. And so in the apartments, I connected with this, what they call an OG, and he was from Compton Front Hood. And he took me on my first crack deal at the Coliseum, at the AMPM that's across the street from the Los Angeles Coliseum. And we sold a quarter ounce of crack to a brain surgeon. And I think in that moment, it was like, wow, I could rationalize this, you know? If a brain surgeon smokes crack, it must be okay, right? Right. And so uh, that was the start, man. I mean, it started with liquor. I ended up on the middle of that street. I was the only white kid. I was in size 60 dickies, white t-shirts, hairnets, and selling crack out of my mouth, hustling, trying to get hotels. Eventually, it cost me my relationship with my father. It went from that to being homeless to eating out of trash cans. And then that culminated many years later to building relationships with the Sinaloa cartel, building a larger scale drug trafficking organization. It wasn't so much that it was feeding my ego. I didn't even have an ego. I had no self-esteem. I had no sense of personal identity. I, I was just a wounded soldier who just unconditionally loved everybody. Like I was that guy who would go and sell eight hours on the street of crack so that I could go and take five or six people and give them a room to sleep in, give them some food to eat and feel like they were in a better place. That's how it was, man. I, you know, I had money in my pocket, but it wasn't spent all the time on me. It was mostly spent on those around me. Michael, when you were running with the drug lords, when you were running with the gangs, when, when you were selling the drugs, were you ever scared when, when you're under the influence or you're chemically dependent on drugs, it's really hard to understand fear or understand what scared is. I mean, you live kind of in this constant state of paranoia. I, I think I was scared from nine years old until 35. Wow. Um, quite frankly, you know, I lived in a place of fear. Fear never stopped me from being accountable. I, you know, I, I've always owned everything and I've always tried to be honest as possible in all my affairs, even when I was doing what people would consider shady things. I always tried to have integrity in it. I think I lived in a constant state of panic and that further fostered that environment for that deeper sinking into chemical dependency. Right. Because that was my outlet. I mean, I could remember, you know, three years straight where I was trying to use as much cocaine and methamphetamine to kill myself. And, and I just couldn't do it. Right. There just wasn't enough. 
Michael, I've never done a drug in my life, so I don't know what it's like, but I have to ask. I've watched a lot of movies. I'm over 50 yeah. years old. I've watched a lot of movies. Sure. I've watched a lot of movies that, 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 that had the drug lords and stuff like that. And they had the toys. They had the money. Did you have all that? I mean, you had over 20 people working for you. You had 20 people running drugs for you. I mean, were you that guy that was just super rich or is it just all like TV stuff or what it looks well, like? Well, the word rich, right? Like, what does that mean? What does that even mean? Did I have money? Yes. I, I, I mean, I can remember trips that we would have to go to Vegas and, and launder money and it would be hundreds of thousands of dollars in stacks of cash. And I had eight or nine cars in my backyard because we were constantly having to use different cars to, I mean, we were running the interstate 15 to interstate 70 corridor from Indio, California to Grand Junction, Colorado, three or four times a week. In fact, recently I went to a concert in Green River, Utah, and my good friend, Bren Hill, he introduced me to one of the like senior most department of highway patrol. And we sat down and, and I told him this story about the one who got away. And, and he was just amazed that I was able to go so long on that corridor without getting caught. But yeah, I mean, that's crazy. How did you get caught, Michael? I mean, you told the story about, you know, you as a, as a child, you running the drugs, everything else, but just like all good things must come to an um, end. It came to an end for you. What happened? Tell, tell the listeners. Yeah, no, it did. And, and interestingly enough, it, it was over a $10 bag of weed. A $10 bag of weed shut down a multi-million dollar drug trafficking operation. Yeah, one of the people that I was that I had in my network in Colorado had sold a $10 bag of weed to a 14-year-old who was intoxicated. That 14-year-old drove down the street, got pulled over got arrested. And then that guy that he got the bag from, he sold out the whole operation. In the end, I was on the run for quite some time. That led to a, a setup where I packaged up a whole bunch of drugs. And I was at this point with the cartel where I was saying, listen, I don't even want to do this no more. I had left Colorado. I was back in California and they were like, no, you can't get out. And I'm like, well, you know, like, I just, I, it's not safe for anybody. And I sent that shipment and I sent it with, with a, a person that I knew. And that person didn't know everything that was in the shipment, but they had task force waiting on the other end. They, they got it. Um, I mean, it, le it led to a good couple of weeks of torment of, the cartel coming and to my family and people getting tied up and threatened and they took all my cars. And I just remember that the final straw was uh, they came to the house. I had a loaded 45 behind my back. They had a gun to my friend's head in the car and it was a showdown. And they said, you better not leave town. And they left. And my sister-in-law at the time came running out of her house, chasing me down with the street with a shoe and just running me away from the house. I ran through the desert. I hid the gun. I went to the highway patrol and I said, I, I, I'm done, you know, and they, they thought I was crazy. So they put me on a 5150 hold. I stayed in the mental ward for like 24 hours. I got out of there. I went to Huntington Beach to a good friend of mine's house. I lived on the run for like eight months. I had gotten in a motorcycle accident early on, and that had been when I had a lawyer. I was going to get big money. We were going to get passports. I didn't have any more money at that time. Like, I lost everything. I'm working two jobs down there, going to payroll places to try and cash my checks, just hiding. And there, the cartel's out, you know, stalking my, my family, and the cops are looking for me and going to my family looking for me. I got a call from my lawyer one day, and he's like, hey, this guy wants to come and take photos of your arm. We just paid five, $600 to have professional photos. And I just had this overwhelming feeling that it's over. You got to stop and you got to be accountable. And I, I prayed and I asked the Lord at that moment to intervene. I, I knew Christ. I knew Jesus. I knew God. 
somehow I knew that that was my way out. And that was what had kept me alive to that point. And I said, you know what? I submit and I surrender as a test. The Lord put me in the situation. So I called my wife at the time. I said, Hey, you need to come down. You need to pick me up. This is it. You know, I told her what I felt, what I knew. I was prepared. I'm looking at Rico statues, 35 years in prison, but I knew that at some point they had to let me out. So my wife, she drove down. I remember we ate over at the Hoff's hut I was working at across the street from the Irvine Airport, John Wayne Airport. She took me out to Manhattan Beach. My attorney's office was right off Rosecrans. So we're talking a huge populated, well-to-do area. I go upstairs. This guy comes in with this $5 store-bought camera (laughs) with a hotel white towel. I mean, I remember this like it was yesterday. He takes a few pictures. I'm in sweats, a t-shirt, and slippers because I know I'm going to L.A. County. We walk out, and there was 60 officers, helicopters, four different task force, local, three different state agencies, FBI, you name it. They were all there, AR-15s. The guy, they didn't tell the insurance guy what was going on. So that guy's peeing his pants. (laughs) I just laid down on the ground and submitted. And I will tell you this, that in that moment, my election was made sure. It took me a long time to walk the journey with Christ and to become and to still work towards becoming a worthy disciple. But in that moment, Christ came, he faced down with the devil and he said, you know what? This one's mine. I haven't looked back. I haven't been perfect and it hasn't been a perfect path to get to where I am. But in that moment, you know, I I still get emotional. You know, I, I, I didn't have an opportunity and I didn't know what was coming. I didn't know in that moment I was going to even spend four and a half years in prison, lose my family, lose my kids, not have any contact, not have any physical touch, not have a, you know, I had one visit from a super good friend of mine and I love you, Jennifer Wood. Thank you. You know, um, I had a good friend who recently lost his life to alcoholism who took my call once a month. $40, 40 dollars 18 minute call just to check in with me there's been some good people that the lord's put in my life to protect me even in prison earlier you talked about that leadership role and just yes i've always been the shepherd i've never been the sheep even in those situations even in prison you know the the lord used my leadership and i was able to minister to a lot of people even in my early days and journey of walking with the lord Michael, I, I, again, I just want to say thank you for, for for sharing your journey with us. I mean, wow, I, I'm getting goosebumps, you know, multiple times here. You said that you could have had up to 35 years. They they gave you 11. You did four. How how did you get out of doing the other yeah, five so years? I mean, you know what yeah, I mean. Yeah. I mean, be, be, because you have to go through like a parole uh, board oh, and, yeah. and, and everything like that. And and, and I know. That usually takes three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I mean, a lot, a lot of times. It yeah. sounds like you did it like right away. Well, interestingly enough, so I was in prison in Colorado, right? So I'm twelve hundred miles away from everything that I called home. I had no contacts. I had no connections to the state. Um, I, you know, I did. I spent four and a half years. I read over four thousand books. I took every single class. I took every opportunity that was afforded to me. You know, I was living off 18 cents a day and a bar of soap was 450 and nobody was sending me money. When it came time to parole, you know, I hadn't talked to my dad. My dad wouldn't have nothing to do with me. My mom was very um, neurotic and had mental health issues and was married to a really young Hispanic gentleman. She tried to sue me while I was in prison. Just, you know, it was terrible. So when it came time to go to the parole board, really the only advocate I had was my, had to be early 90s grandma. I went into the parole board after my parole officer had kind of reached out to my grandma. So, so our initial plan was maybe grandma could take me because in order to get an interstate compact for me to come back to California, it had to be somebody direct. And interestingly, there was another gentleman who came back into my life. This man was a man that when my dad got sober, we met him and he 
became kind of like a big brother to me. The problem was, is that I came out one day from junior high and he and my mom were in the car and they were kissing. Again, I got crushed, right? Well, my mom, while I'm in prison, connects me back with him. And, you know, I'm always willing to give people another chance. And, you know, he had a big part in my life. Well, the parole officer ended up getting in touch with my grandma and getting in touch with him. And somehow they came up with this plan. And so, yes, you're absolutely right. The nature of my crime, um, the circumstances around me paroling out of state, very rarely did anybody get paroled within the first three attempts. So I'm at four and a half years. I walk into the parole office meeting, you know, the state board's there. They go through, they ask a lot of questions and I, I, I kind of get frustrated. And towards the end, they said, well, do you have anything to say? And I said, you know what? Here's where I'm at. I've spent four and a half years in here. I've read 4,000 books. I've taken all of your classes I actually shut down a prison with one other inmate for four days because they had inhumane conditions. I convinced 750 inmates to stay in their cells for three days in protest, nonviolent. They locked me up in the hole for 30 days. They came back to me and said, you know what? We don't have anything on you. We need you to help us. What can we do to make this better? So I, I had a reputation, but I sat before the parole board and I said, look, I, I, I'm done. Like, I've done everything I can do. I, I'm going to stay in here. If you want me to stay in here, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. But when you're ready to let me go, I'm ready to go. And I stood up and I pushed my chair in and I walked out without being excused. And my parole officer's like, I'm not my parole officer, but my case manager's like running out. What are you doing? I'm like, I'm done. I'm not going to play the game. And I went back to my cell. And a few hours later, they came to me and said, you got paroled. Now, the funny thing is, is <laughs> I got paroled right then and there. But I stayed in prison another four months before they were able to process everything. And if you know anything about being in prison, being paroled in prison, forget about it. I mean, you've got a target on your back. Everybody wants misery loves company. So, you know, you're a free man living in prison at that point. So we make plans and God laughs. So when I was fighting my case, I, I mean, I fired three different public defenders. I spent hours in the law library. I wrote countless motions. I, I think that ultimately I just wore down the DA and the judge because I, I just wasn't going to plea out. I knew I was guilty, but I wanted something that was going to be fair and equitable to everybody. And, and I wanted God in those details. Well, at a certain point, I, I had a conversation with God. We were at a 14-year offer, and I went to God, and I said, you know what, God, if I get more than 10 years, I, I'm, I'm going to check out. I knew how I was going to do it. You know, I was going to write a letter, everything else. I had a plan. So I ended up going and putting the offer on the table before the district attorney, and I slid it across the table. And he looked at it and he slid back some papers and I opened it up and it was an indictment for my wife. Wow. And the offer he extended was 11 years. I couldn't see my wife going to prison, even though she had a part in everything that I did. We, we did it to, a lot of it together, but somebody needed to be there for our kids. And so I accepted the 11 year offer. I went back to my cell and God told me, I got you. 30 days into my prison sentence, I went in the law library. I was 27 years old. My judge told me, if you ever come back in my courtroom for a reconsideration, I will pull your offer and I will give you 30 years. So I went and I searched and I searched and I found this boot camp that was open to 18 to 28 year olds. And if you completed this 90 day boot camp program, your judge was mandated to look at a reconsideration on your sentence without pulling your deal. And I went and oh, it was terrible because I was in with a bunch of young kids, but I completed that 90 day boot camp program and he reduced my sentence a year and I got 10 years. Michael, did you learn anything <clears throat> positive or did anything positive come out of going to prison? 
I know, I know oh. that the, I, I know that that's kind of a weird question. Did anything no, positive no. come out of it? But there are a lot of people that think you just go to jail and nothing good comes out of it. Did anything good come out of it for you? I'll, I'll tell you that I was in many different facilities in the Colorado system from low security to high level security. In fact, I spent 9-11 in there for three days locked up in the basement because everything just shut down. From that low level to the high level, 90% of the people that are in there absolutely deserve to be in there. And they have no intentions of doing anything to improve their lives. Literally, if you have more than a year sentence, you become institutionalized. It will take over your life. It will consume you. And so when you look at statistics, the recidivism rate of people who do a year or more in prison is... 80% or better that they're going to go back. And if you get into the range of years that I did, it's 95% or better will go back. I, on the other hand, walking with the Lord, I, I took this as an opportunity to reparent myself. There was nobody there. My parents abandoned me. Everybody who meant anything to me left. And, and I, I don't say that they abandoned me as though I'm a victim. Hell no, they abandoned me because I was toxic. Right. I will tell you one of the most invaluable classes that I took in prison was the impact of crime on its victims. When you started to look at the pyramid of the impact and the collateral damage, maybe I convinced myself that, well, I wasn't selling drugs directly to these people. I had a bunch of people that were doing it for me, right? Right. But those families, their wives, their children, how many people do I that that I put millions of dollars of drugs on the street, killed moms, killed dads, you know, kids that maybe got into those drugs and and got sick. I can't tell you. I, I took that class and it haunted me for it's haunted me all my life. Um, I say when I got up out of the waters of baptism, I really understood why I needed to go through all those things. It was because Christ needed me to be able to truly empathize to be able to really put myself in a person's shoes and say, man, I know what that pain feels like. 100%. Michael, before we get into the good stuff of your life, I got to ask one last question. And I woke up in the middle of the night the other day. And, oh, and, 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 <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, but, but I, and literally the Holy Spirit told me to ask you this question. And I want to paint the picture. You're walking out of that prison, the gates open. Who was there waiting for you? Did you have an entourage of people waiting for you when you came through those gates? Uh, Were you alone? So let, let me tell you what that looks like. So um, there's an old, old rock prison in Canyon City, Colorado, and it's called Territorial. And that is where you get released from prison. And they gave me a check well they gave me a check for 50 bucks and then they cashed that check before you leave so i walked out with 50 dollars in my pocket a bag of clothes that uh, you know i i went into prison probably weighing 135 pounds and i came out of prison weighing 197 pounds with like five percent of body fat so the clothes didn't fit <laughs> right. um, jennifer wood i love you she and her family got together. And you have to understand, Jennifer is the daughter of the parents who were my co-defendants. Um, and so Paul and Elaine were my co-defendants, and they ended up serving some time, but they got out before me. And so they sent me a little care package with some clothes. I got on a Greyhound. And in fact, the first stop on the Greyhound was Grand Junction, and they were there. They had cooked me this amazing dinner. I got back on the Greyhound, and I was on my way to my life. Um, and, and that's where it all started. And no, there was nobody there. When I touched down in Long Beach, the guy that I, I talked about, his name's Vince, he picked me up and right away he said, I got a problem. I'm like, what's the problem? He's like, well, everything that we put in for your plan, his brother said, no way, you can't have that guy here. He's like, I don't know what to do. So he put me in a hotel that night. I tell you, dude, I'm like in Fourth and Broadway in Long Beach. For those people who know that area, they, they know this is the hood. <laughs> uh, I go to the grocery store and it literally took me like 15 minutes 
to like decide to get a pack of lunch meat and a loaf of bread because I realized I only had 50 bucks. The next day I got up that morning, I walked 20 miles. I walked to the social security department, got a social security card. I walked to the DMV. I got a driver's license. I walked clear across town to Seal Beach to go see my grandma. She scared the out of me because she was 90 and still driving and I hadn't driven into anybody in five years. We had lunch. I walked another 20 miles back or, or 10 miles back into Long Beach to my parole officer and I had to break the news to her that I had nowhere to live. Wow. <laughs> so, so it was never easy. Let was, me tell you, like nothing has been easy. <laughs> well, my, Michael, I want to get to the good stuff and, and that is where are you now? What are you doing? I mean, we, we, we talked earlier oh. about one of your businesses. I, I want you to talk about because you are on the straight and narrow now. You're married. You got a beautiful house. You got an incredible truck. You got businesses. Talk a little bit about that. Spend some time talking about the good things that's going on in your life right now. Absolutely. I mean, there's there's still so much more to fill in from, from that period to now and how I got here. But yeah, I got out of prison April of uh, 2004. In the course of four years, I regained my relationship with my mother, my father, just in time for them to die. My mother was diagnosed with thyroid cancer and she lived in Vegas. And so I was maybe six months out of prison and she was going through that and it came down to the end. She was hospitalized. I had to be there to kind of pass her through the veil and leave her at peace. And then it wasn't six months later. My dad came to me and said, I'm dying of cancer. I want you to take care of me. I spent a year with him from there. He was taking care of my great aunt, which is one of the three sisters, my grandma's sisters, who came across, you know, escaped the Holocaust. She had no husband, no kids. I rented a house right next to my grandma, who at the time was living in assisted living. I brought my aunt in. I ended up taking care of her on hospice for two and a half years, taking care of my grandma, taking care of their other sister and her husband. The Lord just put me in this, like, total alpha lion king of the pride mode with my family but it was just so traumatic you know just loss after loss after loss my dad being one of the hardest each time i'm still like running a business 2008 2009 my great aunt passes away and all of a sudden i get this pain in my finger and my my aunt used to talk about trigger finger I'm like, oh, okay, maybe it's this trigger finger. My aunt, she left, and maybe she's a reminder. But then I got it in my other index finger on my left side. And it was, I, I mean, you know, I'm a grown man, but it felt like somebody was putting my finger in a vice. Next thing I know, it's in my wrist. It's in my elbow. It's in my jaw. It's in my body. And I had severe rheumatoid arthritis. It just came on, like, out of a thief in the night. I was on major doses of chemotherapy to try and suppress my immune system. I was sick all the time. Well, at this time, I met my third wife. Uh, when she got pregnant with my son and he was born, I was actually in the bed next to her. I couldn't move. I, and we're both in the hospital beds while my son's being born. And it was crazy. And that was 12 years ago. We look back. Things got kind of really bad with her, and I ended up having to kind of be the main provider and caregiver for my son. I got this disease. I'm running a multi-million dollar construction company. I've got 17 projects across 250 miles of land in Southern California. And if you know anything about that and traffic, you know, and, and at that time, it wasn't that I had a bunch of stuff. Like, this stuff has never been a thing for me. I love to drive. I like to have a nice vehicle. I would never buy a brand new vehicle. I just like to have a nice thing that I can drive, listen to music. I'll put tens of thousands of miles on the road. That's my dad used to say his higher power was the 91 freeway. And I just say that that was his time and his modality to talk with God. And that's mine as well. We, we share that, you know, 2013 comes and it's my 40th birthday and I'm about three days from my birthday, and, and Johnny, I, I just, I'm tired, man. My son at that point is two and a half years old. It's just me and him. We're sleeping on a blanket pallet in the living room because I had so much trauma with, with his mom that I, I just couldn't even sleep in the bedroom. 
And so I, I knelt down and I, I had moved into these apartments in Huntington Beach. And I used to say it was a little Mormon commune. And my ex-wife was like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, I, I just have a feeling. And I, I had only to that point had one engagement with a Mormon person. And that was in prison. And he was the leader of a white supremacist gang. And he and I became really good friends. But he had been adopted by a Mormon family out of St. George. But I started seeing this light in these families. They were all young families that moved into this apartment complex because it was the most affordable and cleanest complex in Huntington Beach. And they were all like interning or just got out of college. And so they were young. They'd have like two and three kids. And there was probably about six of them. One was my neighbor next door. And so I started talking and the big, the big thing in the, in the LDS churches, they have what they call the Relief Society, and that's all the women in the church. That's kind of like their sub-organization. And, and really, uh, if you ask me, I say the Relief Society runs our church, and, and everything about everything that we accomplish happens because of the Relief Society. But all these women used to go down in the Greenville. I'd go down there with the baby. And it was just me and all these women, and I would make cookies for them, and they were, you know, they'd always be pregnant, and so I'm always trying to do what I can for them. But I would ask them about their faith. I mean, you got to understand, I've studied all kinds of religion throughout my time. Um, I tried to go back to my Jewish roots, but I just didn't feel like they were aligned with the orthodoxy of of my relationship with God. I, I started talking to them, and man, I, I got to this point where I just... I knelt down and I prayed three days before my birthday. And I said, Lord, I'm at this point again. I'm done. I don't feel like this is a safe place in this world for me or for my son. And at that time, I, I, I wanted to take us both away. I wanted to take us both home. And I said, Lord, I want you to send somebody to my door tomorrow. The next day, there was a knock at my door and it happened to be my neighbor and there was a gentleman with him, and he reached out his hand, and he said, my name's Brad Ward, and I'm the bishop of your local LDS ward. And I was over here helping, doing some service, and I just really felt compelled to come over here and give you a priesthood blessing. And I was like, well, I don't know what a priesthood blessing is, but I know what I asked for, and so please come in. Those two men put hands on me, and the Lord spoke directly to me, and he answered both all three of those questions, and the path was laid before me since then. I feel like I really consecrated a portion of my life at that moment in time. Uh, a month later, I was baptized into the LDS church. I'm one of a very small percentage of Jewish converts to the LDS church. When I was baptized and I came up out of the waters of baptism, the Lord was very clear with me. He said, you're not to be known as a Mormon and you're not to be known as a Christian. You're a disciple of Jesus Christ. Society is going to put labels on all of these people as a people, but you're a child of God, and I want you to find your identity. That's what I felt. You know, that was the general feeling I got. The other thing he said is you're a missionary inside my church as much as you are outside of my church. And I can promise you, Johnny, that if you ask anybody that has come into my path since that day, if I am not then a reflection of my testimony of Jesus Christ and his power and his authority and his love for us since that day. And so since that day, I have tried to curate and cultivate an environment for spiritual experiences to happen with people around me. I want them to feel that love. I want them to feel those things that people can't give them that food can't give them, that drugs can't give them, that entertainment can't give them, but only our Savior Jesus Christ can give them. I'm blessed with some amazing orchestration skills and facilitating skills. I tend to be a central hub of creating a harmonic symphony of productivity for everybody around me. I, I just want to give everybody an outstanding life or yeah. at least share with them that there's an opportunity out there. I used to think I had to look in front of me at mentors and people that I thought were in front of me in their place in God's love. And what I realized, and more so just over the past couple of years, is, no, nah, man, 
I got your three and I got your nine. I have I have my my good friend Wendy who works with me here and and that's our joke is you know I don't I don't got your back I got your shoulder <laughs> I love and it what I find is we we look linear we look across from right to left and really it's those people who are closest to us and who are impacting us yes those are the ones that we're going to see right away but I'll tell you man I look three down and I see my buddy Kelly who just took his life earlier in the year. I look four down. I see my dad, you know, but I might see Katie or Wendy or I might see my wife or my son or my grandson right next to me right now. Right. But it's linear. You, Johnny, you don't stand in front of me. The Pope doesn't stand in front of me. The president doesn't stand in front of me. You don't stand behind me. Nobody stands behind me. I don't care. You could be the bum on the street. You could be the the bottom end of anybody's social analyzing and and labeling you're still at my shoulder i love it i love it hey michael we have to wrap things up how can people get a hold of yeah. you if, 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 if they want to contact you oh man i'm i'm out there in the social media world I, I, you know right now we're we're making a big push with swift creek trading so you can follow us on instagram i i, I am the man behind that that's kind of our testing pool of some of the innovative business concepts that we're trying to take to small town USA. Um, we've got American Frontier Entertainment, which is entertainment agency with some Nashville artists. We're getting ready to do a small town USA tour. Look on LinkedIn, Michael Horn, I'm score mentor with the small business administration here in Wyoming. I'm totally out there. You can like me on Facebook, Michael Horn. I love talking to people. I spend the first five hours of my day actually doing the business and productivity. And then I give my life to the Lord around nine or 10 o'clock. And you come upstairs in Afton, Wyoming into our store. You walk in our door upstairs and I'm the first person you see. I like to give everybody access and let's find ways to make this world a better place. And everybody, Michael Horn left me a message the other day. And I want to share it with you. It says, if you fail, never give up because fail means first attempt in learning. End, end is not the end. In fact, end means effort never dies. If you get no as an answer, remember, remember this. No means next opportunity change your mindset. Everybody, I'm Johnny D, the motivational cowboy. That was Michael Horn. Don't forget to follow him on Facebook, Instagram, and wherever you have um, your social media channels. And, and I just can't thank you all enough for tuning in to this week's Outstanding Life podcast. We'll see you next week right here on the Outstanding Life podcast. Hey, I'm Johnny D, the motivational cowboy. Are you planning a conference, convention, meeting, assembly, or any live event that needs a guest speaker? I would love to be a part of it. For more information, visit MotivationalCowboy.com. And don't forget to check out my Outstanding Life podcast every Sunday here on Dirt Road Radio, KYDT 103.1 FM and KBFS 1450 AM. Have an outstanding day. Thanks for listening to the Outstanding Life Podcast. Follow Johnny D on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Motivational Cowboy. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, advertise, or would like to make a donation, please visit MotivationalCowboy.com. And remember to have an outstanding day.